Thank you very much. Thanks for the uh, invitation to be here. Um, you know, it's interesting traveling all over the world and having the opportunity to meet Christians um, from places that, that are, are literally on the opposite face of the earth. Emily and I walked in here tonight. We didn't know a single one of you, and we are among family. That is an amazing thing, and um, it is a privilege for me to have the opportunity to, to train pastors in places like Africa, in China, in Japan, in uh, Central America, all over the world. Um, we go and we train pastors. The reality is that the last 200 years, the gospel has exploded around the world, particularly in the global south. The gospel is exploding with a speed we've never seen before. Uh, but what this has done is it has created a massive need for developing pastors, to train pastors so that they know God's word and they will preach it faithfully. And sadly, as we travel the world, what we find is that most pastors do not have any formal education. There is a void where they've been taught the gospel. They know just the, the basics of the Christian faith, but then they, they're not taught anything else. And so a void is going to be filled by something. And the predominant thing that we see around the world that's filling that void is what is known as the prosperity gospel, the health and wealth gospel. This is the idea that if you have enough faith, you won't suffer. That God is for you in such a way that you are going to be rich. You want that, that new Mercedes Benz? Just claim it in the name of Jesus. And if you have enough faith, it's yours. Oh, and you won't, you won't experience any suffering. You know, and so this, this issue of what is the relationship between suffering and faith? This is a massive question, and this is a question that every Christian needs to know. What, is, what does God's word say about suffering? What are we to think about God when we go through suffering, right? Our world is incredibly broken. How can we persevere as we go through trials in life, Right? And I don't know what you're going through right now, right? Our world is filled with physical pain, deformities, disabilities, anxieties, stress, broken relationships, abuse, neglect. We have a, a, a world that has a, a mental health crisis on our hands, right? Depression, suicide. How are we going to find hope in this world? Well, God willing, the gospel of John is going to answer that question for us this evening. Now, when we come to the Bible, we want to ask certain questions if we're going to interpret the passage correctly, right? Because when we come to the Bible, the goal is to discover God's intended meaning, right? We're not, we're not taking our ideas and squeezing them into the Bible. We want to know what's already there. What is God's idea? That's what ultimately matters, and so one of the first questions that, that we ask is, what is the genre that we are studying? And, and today, as we look at the Gospel of John, we're reading a narrative. And if we want to understand the narrative, one of the things we need to know is that the stories that lead up to the text are very important for helping us understand the text. So as we come to John chapter 11, we want to ask, well, what has gone on in the book of John before this? Well, John opens... The Gospel of John chapter 1 um, with a bold claim about who Jesus is. Jesus is God. He is God the Son. In fact, he is the creator. 
and John chapter 2 through 10 demonstrate that Jesus is going to demonstrate his identity. He's going to prove his identity as God the Son through his teaching and his miracles. And as this is happening through these uh, nine or ten chapters, we also see there are some people that are following Jesus. They're beginning to believe in him. But at the same time, there is a growing opposition. Right? And the clearer that Jesus becomes about his identity, the fiercer the opposition comes against him. In John chapter 8, you probably remember when Jesus claims to be one with Yahweh, saying, before Abraham was, I am. That's the name of God that God gives to Moses. That's, that's a bold statement. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Ooh, the religious leaders don't like that. And they decide we need to arrest Jesus. They attempt to do this, but Jesus escapes and he crosses over the Jordan. And this is where we come. We are across the Jordan. Uh, the disciples are with Jesus and they've gone over the other side to escape. Okay, and so we are starting there in John chapter 11. Let me pray for us and then we'll get into the text, okay? Father, we trust you and we trust your word. We need a word of hope tonight. Uh, this world is broken, and we have all tasted a fair share of that, and we've probably caused some of it too. We ask that you would give us hearts that are ready for truth, and would you comfort us uh, with your word tonight? May you be glorified in it, we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, if you are a note taker, I'm a note taker. I always take notes. If you want to take notes, there are four main movements in this passage, John chapter one, uh, John chapter 11, verses one through 44. Um, let me read the text and then we'll, we'll move through those four movements, okay? Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha, it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he had meant taking rest in sleep. Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. 
Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the, so the Jews said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. This is a, a wonderful passage with many great gospel truths for us tonight. The first movement of this text is found in verses 1 through 16. We'll call this God's sovereignty and love in our suffering. God's sovereignty and love in our suffering. Well, verse 1 of this text introduces us to Lazarus. John says that this is Lazarus. He's the one who's from Bethany, and you know him. He's the one who is the brother of the famous Mary and Martha. This is the same Mary who anoints Jesus with ointment. You remember this story. Now, what's interesting is that John includes this little tidbit before the gospel of John tells that story. That actually comes in chapter 12. So it's fascinating that John is reminding his readers about something he has not yet told them. Why would he do that? Well, this is one of the, the great famous stories that would have spread among the early Christians even before John had written down the gospel, the gospel of John. This is the famous story. Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And so this is foreshadowing at the beginning of this, sort of baiting the hook for his readers Pay attention to this story. You know what's coming. Okay? Now, news comes to Jesus that Lazarus is sick, and with Jesus' very first words, he gives a promise. This illness does not lead to death. That's a great promise. 
But it's actually somewhat perplexing, right? Because Lazarus dies, <laughs> right? One of the reasons that I love the Gospel of John in general, and this passage in particular, is that it reveals the hearts and the worries of man with a brutal transparency. You know, when I started working through this text on my own, I read this promise of Jesus, and, and I was quick to say, what are you talking about, Jesus? Lazarus dies. How can you say this does not lead to death? He does die. But I think Jesus' very next words tell us what Jesus meant. What was Jesus really saying? He says, it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. You see, Jesus is able to see beyond what man can see. He's not fixated on the fact that, yes, Lazarus is going to die. Yes, he's going to be in the tomb for just four days. Right? He's fixated on what comes after those four days. He's fixated on what is going to lead to the glory of God. He's going to walk out of that tomb. So, yes, Jesus' statement is somewhat confusing, but this actually should not surprise us at this point. Jesus often spoke to his disciples in a way that, that they took very literally, literalistically, right? And yet Jesus intended the phrase or the statement to be understood metaphorically or spiritually, and they're confused. This happens frequently. And so here, Jesus, I think what he's saying when he says the illness does not lead in death, he's saying that the, the end of this illness is not death. Death comes in the middle of this story. That's not the end. The illness does not lead to death. It leads through death and to the glory of God. The end of the story is glory. And as we'll see, life and joy among God's people so how can Jesus say this? He says it because, one, he knows the future, and he's focused on that glory that is to come. He knows the future, and two, Jesus controls the future. Wow, he doesn't just know what's coming, he controls what's coming. Jesus is the one who is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. So he can say, this doesn't lead to death. I'm going to make sure that that doesn't happen. Now, in verse 5, John wants to remind us for the second time that Jesus loves Mary and Martha and Lazarus. This is important. He needs to tell us he loves them because verse 6 is going to tell us something very strange. He loves them so when Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And we look at that and we might say, how is that love? That, that looks like a lack of love. That looks like a lack of compassion, maybe laziness. Or as oftentimes skeptics will say, that's evil, right? This is the argument that many atheists will bring up or, or just skeptics in general, right? They say if God has the power to prevent suffering and if he is all good, then he is morally obligated to prevent all suffering. We look around the world, they're suffering, okay, Either God does not have all power or God is not good, right? That's their conclusion. Don't believe in God. Look, John does not buy that argument for a second. The author of the Gospel of John does not buy that argument. Jesus loved this family, so Jesus stayed longer. That's interesting. Now, Jesus' disciples probably liked that plan. Let's, let's stay. 
right? This is what they say in verse 8. When Jesus finally decides, let's go to Bethany, his disciples remind him, look, we were just in Jerusalem and everybody was trying to kill you. Why would we go back there? Are you crazy? Did you forget what happened? This is important, right? Because we're trying to figure out how is it that Jesus can love Lazarus and intentionally delay his trip where he might go and heal him. His motivation is resurrection and glory. God's plan is not just to prevent all suffering, but to bring about redemption that comes through suffering. We see that most in the cross of Jesus Christ. The greatest single event to ever happen in the history of the world was suffering. It was death. And of course, not just death, but resurrection. There's no resurrection if there's no death. This was true both for Lazarus and it was true for Jesus. This is interesting. When Jesus goes to Bethany, just two miles from Jerusalem, Jesus knows that by raising Lazarus from the dead, he's going to be putting into motion a series of events that will lead to his own arrest, trial, and death. This is all part of the plan. So the disciples question him, why are we going? Jesus has a plan. It's a plan of love. In fact, the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus endured the cross. This is Hebrews 12, 2. Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. How did Jesus endure the suffering of his own death? By focusing on what comes on the other side of suffering, glory. And when we face our sufferings, we don't know how to do this very well, do we? We have a hard time figuring out how is it that God is going to bring about good through this suffering, right? And, and it's hard enough to talk about that in general, but we look at specific sufferings in our life. We point at this event that happened. How do I make sense of this? What good comes from this? And most of the time, the answer is, I don't know. And if you ask another Christian if they're wise, they will tell you, I don't know, because that's the reality. And look at what Jesus says. This is exactly what Jesus says to his disciples when they ask him. He says in verse 9, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him little um, analogy or little parable here inserted into this passage in John 11. We are going through life like people stumbling through the darkness. I wonder if you've ever been out, maybe out in the desert, out somewhere far away from the city lights when it's really dark at night. Maybe the stars are not out, the, maybe there are clouds overhead or something, and it is a pitch black night. And you strain your eyes, you know, trying to get in as much light as possible. You don't have your torch on trying to figure out how to move around, you're still stumbling around, and you still stub your toe on stuff, right? That's us, going through life, bumping into suffering. You can't see a thing. Jesus says, there is someone who goes through life like walking through the day, and he doesn't stumble. And in this parable, that's not us. That's Jesus he can see perfectly what we cannot see. Now, how do we know that that's the meaning of this parable? How do we know that I'm not just coming up with some fancy little interpretation of that? 
we got to find it in the text, and it's in the text. There are three reasons that I know that that is the meaning of this parable. Number one, this whole story is demonstrating the fact that Jesus knows what will happen even when no one else does. Number two, Jesus uses this same parable again in chapter 12, verses 27 to 36. He's describing his own coming death. He's prophesying of what is to come, and he says, While you still have the light among you, believe in the light so that you may become sons of the light. Clearly, Jesus is using the word light to refer to himself. And then thirdly, at the very beginning of the gospel, in chapter 1, John describes Jesus as the light. Verse, verse 9 of chapter 1, he says, The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So the gospel of John is clearly indicating Jesus is the light. That is what he is talking about. So we come back to chapter 11. Jesus is telling his friends that he can see and understand what they could not possibly see or understand. Why are you going to Jerusalem? They want to kill you. Because I know what you don't know. The disciples fear that if we go back to Jerusalem, they're going to kill you. Jesus knows that's going to happen. The disciples think that would be a bad idea. Jesus knows that's the best idea. He knows what you don't know. He sees what we cannot see. In verse 11, we learn that Lazarus has fallen asleep. And here we have another example of Jesus using a phrase that the disciples take literally, but Jesus meant it metaphorically, right? Jesus is talking about his death. And so when he says he's going to wake him up, he's not talking about, you know, kicking your buddy when he's falling asleep in class. He's talking about waking up a dead man. And so they don't get it. He tells them in verse 13, he's dead. And for your sake, here's another perplexing statement, for your sake, I'm glad I was not there. Why in the world would this be the case? It's so strange, the way that we think. Because they don't believe in Jesus as they must. You see, the disciples needed to understand that Jesus has the power over life and death. Especially because in not too long from now, Jesus is going to die. They need to know that Jesus is the author of life. He has the power of life over death. They don't believe in Jesus as they need to, not yet. Verse 16, we meet Thomas, and this is interesting. Thomas is still thinking about the fact that if we go back to Jerusalem, we're going to die. That's where his mind is. The fact that, that Jesus just told him, we're, we're going to go wake up a dead man, that went whew, right over his head. All right? We're going to go to Jerusalem, we're going to die. Lazarus is dead, we're going to join him. Let's, let's go, let's go with Jesus, and we can all die. It's like, pay attention, Thomas. Now, this passage is extremely important for us, and it's why I've moved through these, these 16 verses really slowly. In fact, I would say, if you forget everything else this evening, you will still be very well off as you go through suffering, if you will remember that even as we stumble through the darkness of suffering, our God can see it all. He's not surprised by what you're surprised by. He sees it all. He knows it's coming. He's planned it all. And it's, he's sovereign and he is good. He loves you through it all. Those truths are enough to sustain you through trial. 
And yet the text goes on. There's more goodness for us in this passage. So we pick up now in the second section of our text, verses 17 to 32. We'll call this Martha and Mary's real but imperfect faith. Real but imperfect faith. Okay, so Jesus and the 12 arrive just outside Bethany. And Martha runs from town. She runs out to meet Jesus. She leaves Mary behind. Mary is still crying. She's still mourning. Martha runs forward. And her first first words reveal grief and faith. Grief and faith. She believed, she says, that if Jesus had been present, he would have uh, had the ability to prevent Lazarus from dying. And that's true, right? Like, she, she was right to believe in Jesus' power. And then her next statement reveals the hopefulness in her faith. She says, but even now, meaning after Lazarus has been dead four days, even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. So it seems that, that it seems obvious to me that Martha is talking about resurrection, right? What else could she be talking about? Like, I, I know that right now, if you were to ask God to raise Lazarus from the dead, it would happen. And that is why Jesus responds, your brother will rise again. This is fascinating to me. Martha, at this point, chooses now to withhold some of her hope for the present miracle. She says she knows that God will resurrect him at the end of time. And I want you to notice this pattern in Martha's faith she had believed that Jesus had a special relationship with God in such a, a, such a relationship that God would answer Jesus' prayers, always. It was always a yes. Whatever you ask him, he'll do for you. And she believes that at the, the day of judgment, God would raise people back to life. She's, she's got this view of, of God. God has the power to do all these things, and she has, a, she has a certain kind of faith in Jesus, but she's sort of missing something. And I think Jesus' response to her is teaching us what's missing. She says, I believe that the resurrection will come at the end. And what does Jesus say? I am the resurrection. I am the object of your faith. You need to understand, I am the Son of God. Your faith is in me. If you want hope for eternal life, Jesus is the object of faith. It's not enough to believe that there's this sort of uh, floating promise, right? Promises are bound by the character of the one who makes them. Why do we believe the promises of the Bible? Because they're made by God. Why do we believe that there will be a resurrection of the dead? Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. When we go through suffering, we need to remember that our faith is in Jesus. Our hope is in a person. And that's why we can trust his promise. Now, we turn our attention to Mary, verses 28 to 32. And and Mary, she doesn't get up initially. She doesn't come to Jesus until she's called. She is grieving. She's broken down, crying in the house. Jesus calls her and she rushes out to him. She collapses at his feet she gets one thing out of her mouth, and it's the exact same thing that Martha had said. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, we don't have a whole lot in the text to really decipher much about Mary's faith. I think there are about four things that that we can see in the text. One is grief has overtaken her. She's overtaken by grief. That's clear. Two, she repeats word for word what Martha said in verse 21. Third, she offers no follow-up statements of faith like Martha did. 
And fourth, she, she falls and weeps at his feet. So what can we conclude from this? Two things, I think. One, like Martha, Mary had real faith. She had real faith in Jesus. She believed in his goodness and in his power, right? If you had been here, you would have had the ability to stop him from dying, and I believe that you would have done that. You're powerful and you're good, right? So she had, she had faith. And the second thing we conclude is she was terribly confused as to why Jesus didn't come. She's terribly confused. So there's faith and confusion. And man, I, I just think these two women give us such a, a clear picture of our own experience of suffering and faith. That's us. As we suffer, yeah, we're, we're believers, we're Christians, and so we're, we're clinging to Jesus, and we're utterly confused. At the same time, that's us. Right? We, I think we, we toggle back and forth between faith in God's plan and then uh, utter confusion about his plan. Right? And, and I think we even see this in our prayer. In our prayers, we, we acknowledge, God, you're in control. And then, on the other hand, right, right out the other side of our mouth, we're, we're like, Lord, what is going on? This, everything is out of control. We toggle back and forth, faith and confusion. And I want you to see here that even with their imperfect faith, Jesus deeply loves Martha and Mary. And with your imperfect faith, Jesus deeply loves you. Now, of course, Jesus invites us to have a better faith, a more accurate, theologically accurate faith. A, a better faith is going to result in more peace. So, of course, we want to grow in our knowledge of God so that we can trust him in, in a, a better way. But I, I want you to see the compassion of Jesus and the way he responds to Mary. And this is going to be our third section, verses 33 to 37. Jesus' response to our suffering. Jesus looks down at Mary, weeping. He looks at the Jews who had come with her, and they are also weeping. And John says two things happen in Jesus' heart. Two things. First, Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit. And two, he was greatly troubled. And this first phrase, deeply moved in his spirit, this is one of the very few places that I think most English translations fail to adequately capture the Greek nuance of the phrase. And I understand why the translators translate it the way they did, um, but this term should really be translated as angered or outraged or indignant. Interesting. The, the Greek term is very clear there that Jesus is mad. Now, his anger is not with Mary. He is not angry that they are mourning. He's not angry with them for mourning, which is proven in the fact that Jesus actually joins them in mourning. Verse 35, Jesus wept. Let's sit on that for a minute. Jesus wept. This is profound, right? Jesus knew that Lazarus was already dead even before he showed up. And from the beginning of chapter 11, Jesus has been saying he's going to raise him back to life. Now Jesus is there. He's like five minutes away from calling the dead man out of the tomb. He's seeing everybody weep, and he could have said, stop crying. Check this out. Why are you so sad? You're about to see the glory of God. He doesn't do that. What does Jesus do? He balls his eyes out. He weeps with those who weep. Jesus is not angry with Mary. 
family Jesus loved was grieving. They were struggling to understand what faith is supposed to look like as they mourned. And Jesus is angry and he's troubled. What's going on here? I want to argue that Jesus is furious with sin and death. Death itself. Jesus is not content with death. And I make this connection because in verse 38, John uses the same word again. He says that Jesus was deeply moved or angered as he comes to the tomb. And what is he going to do when he's angry? He's going to yell out, Lazarus, come out. Right? So he's going to crush death in this anger. This is really important as we suffer This picture of Jesus being angry at death. He's weeping with his friends. This has given me tremendous comfort in the midst of very deep pain. How gracious for God to give us this snapshot into his love for his children. That when we suffer and when we grieve and when we cry and when we are anger at suffering and death, we can turn to John 11 and we see Jesus crying. We can see Jesus angry. God is not just for us in power. He is for us in power. He's also for us in spirit. He is the empathetic one. Jesus can empathize with you in your sorrow, in your tears. You know, sometimes we come to the Bible and we read that that the Bible can comfort us, God can comfort us, and we want to know what does that look like? I want to feel the presence of Jesus. I want to know that he is, in fact, weeping with me. John 11 does that. We see Jesus weeping with those who weep. Now, Jesus not only empathizes with us, he also responds in power. And this leads to our fourth and final movement in this text, which is our hope in suffering. Verses 38 to 34, 44, 38 to 44, our hope in suffering. So now we have arrived at the moment that Jesus had spoken of back in verse 4. He tells them to remove the stone. And here, Martha is going to reveal the crack in her faith, right? It's not perfect yet. She doesn't come to this point realizing Jesus just told me he's the resurrection. Now he's telling them to move the stone away. She should be getting excited. Instead, she says, that's going to smell. You're going to open his tomb, Jesus? That's... uh, That feels like desecration. Why would you do that? Jesus reminds Martha that he has already promised to show her the glory of God if she would believe. Jesus then prays, and he prays aloud so that the people standing around would know. What what are they to know? They, They need to know his identity, that he was sent by God. Remember, the whole book of John is about Jesus' identity as the Son of God. And then Jesus commands the dead man to come out of the tomb. And what do we read? The dead man, the man who had died, came out. His hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. And then John continues with the story. Explains that many of the Jews believed in Jesus, just as Jesus had prophesied would happen. Others, however, they run off to the Pharisees. They tell the Pharisees, hey, uh, Jesus just raised this guy from the dead. And of course, the Pharisees are like, oh man, well, we got to kill Lazarus now. 
<laughs> he's sort of like the proof that Jesus is who he said he was. So we're going to have to kill Lazarus. We better arrest Jesus. Right? John just goes on with the story. And it's interesting. I, I read these verses, 38 to 44, and I want to hear more about Mary and Martha. Right? What did they say when they saw this? They saw the glory of God. This, this is an amazing story. I want to hear what the disciples had to say. Maybe most of all, I want to hear what Lazarus has to say. We don't ever hear from Lazarus. But I think there is a reason that John doesn't give us any of those things. That's this story. This is not the climax of the gospel of John. It's not the gospel. This is a foreshadow of what is to come. The climax is the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so what does John do? He tells us the story faithfully and he moves along. The book is about proving the identity of Jesus. And he does that with this story, faithful story to history. And it also pictures for us the resurrection of Jesus Christ who died for our sin. And he was raised for our justification. So just a few thoughts as we want to close this evening. Think about what do we do with this? Well, the first thing I want to say is as Christians, we need to develop a biblical theology of suffering. We need to reject this idea that if you have enough faith, you're not going to suffer. We need to just set that on the side over there, right? Set that over there with other false teachings. That, that doesn't have any place in the Bible. You're going to suffer. In fact, um, you go to 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul says that if, if you want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, everyone who's, who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted without exception. Suffering will come. We need to develop a good theology of how does God think of us in our suffering. And John 11 teaches us that Jesus can see what we cannot see. Yes, you are stumbling around in the darkness. And if you try to explain every single type of suffering that you go through in your life, you're going to drive yourself insane. And you might even drive yourself right out of the church. We need to trust the Lord because he can see and he can understand what we cannot see or understand. We need to remember God is sovereign and he loves us. And in the end, Jesus brings life and redemption, right? I doubt that any one of us is going to experience the kind of glory that Lazarus experienced in this life. I doubt it. I suppose it could happen. It can happen. But we will experience that on the other side of life. We will, every one of us, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, you will experience this glory we will be raised to live with Jesus forever. And I think in eternity, God will reveal to us what exactly he was doing with our suffering. Every last drop of suffering that you go through in this life will be redeemed for eternal good. This is the best answer there is to the problem of evil. Jesus Christ, God the Son, laying down his life for his friends so that we could spend eternity with him in glory. So what are you to do? Turn to Jesus. He is for you. Let's pray. Father, we worship you this evening. We praise you for the the good gospel truth that we have heard from John 11. Would you comfort us in suffering, whether we are in it right now or whether it is 
days or weeks or months ahead of us. Ground us in the truth of your word so that when suffering comes, we will not be tempted to question your power or question your goodness, but we will see Jesus weeping with us. Know that we would know that you, you are in fact for us. We thank you for this truth. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.